0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we've been working our way through the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. And we've been talking about this issue of uh, where Paul's been talking about what it looks like to represent God well in our culture, that we are called to be servants of the Lord as followers of Jesus Christ, and that he actually wants to use us to represent him to those who don't know him. And we spent a lot of time talking about what that looks like last week and how crazy it is that with all of our shortcomings, no matter how spiritual and godly you are, and no matter how long you've been walking with God, you've got warts. And yet God, who is perfect, loving, righteous, and just, wants to use us as his representatives. And what a remarkable thing that is. Now what Paul does in, in chapter 7 is he turns back to the issue which we've touched upon as we've gone through this book of the problem of his specific relationship with the people in Corinth. That uh, there are problems there that Paul had been used to start the church there. He had gone to tell them about the message of Jesus Christ, uh, and many people had come to Christ and formed a community, but that community was really failing to represent Christ to the rest of the city. They had a lot of problems. And so as he was writing them this letter of 2nd Corinthians, this is a follow-up to the previous letter that is also in the Bible of 1st Corinthians, In part, what he's doing is he's answering the accusations that have come against his character and work, because as he has sort of taken them on and begun to describe to them some of the shortcomings in their community and how things need to change, they've done a very human, very typical thing. And they're like, who are you, Paul? You've got problems, too. And why should we trust you? And what gives you the right to tell us we need to change? And so... In part, this letter that we're studying is his response to their critique of him. It's part of his desire to mend his relationships with them, to protect the unity. He's, he's coming at them and saying, look, we have to have a place in our life as fellow believers in Jesus Christ and students of the Bible where we can speak to one another on these things. And it can't destroy our relationships. We have to give each other permission To speak the truth in love. And to press for change. Growth. Forward progress. thats called a walk with God because it's a process. And we very much need the input of others. And we need to create an environment where others feel free to speak into our lives. And welcome us to speak into theirs. So he turns to that and we get to 2 Corinthians 7 and he starts here. He says in in verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our heart to die together and to live together. And so he's returning back to this issue and he's talking about the difficulty of this thing of, of personal confrontation In 1 Corinthians, he said some very difficult things that they needed to hear. They didn't like it too much. And now there's alienation between them. And so Paul is trying to plead with them to operate on a more spiritually mature level where they they can dialogue about where things need to change. And if you've ever tried this, if you've ever been involved, uh, not just on a spiritual level, but if you've ever critiqued anybody, ever brought the idea into somebody else's life that there are some things that they might need to change, you know how difficult this is. It's super scary and risky. You have probably personally experienced the end of friendships and relationships over some kind of difference. Or critique that you brought against someone else why is that we're a very prideful people we don't like we, we we are willing to accept that we have shortcomings but who are you to tell me what my shortcomings are when you have so many problems yourself we don't like to be confronted we don't like our business and our weaknesses to be exposed because we spend a lot of time in competition with one another protecting ourselves and trying to get what we want out of other people. And we feel like when our weaknesses are exposed, then we become vulnerable and we get defensive. It's hard because if you're going to confront someone in this way, it's likely that you're going to have to pay a heavy price, right? Every married person knows this, you know, we say, well, you know, you should confront your spouse about this issue and they're doing calculus in their head. If I do that, The response will be this and it'll take this long nope not gonna do it (laughs) no no thank you i would rather live with the problem than the problem that confronting the issue might create right you're gonna pay a price for doing it another reason we don't like to do it is when you confront others you open yourself up for critique right and it's much easier to create a conspiracy of silence with others. To say, you know, look, you don't bring up my stuff. I won't bring up your stuff. And we will just live a shallow, fake life together. Right? I mean, we don't think of it that way, but that's sort of the agreement that we're, that we're, that we're engaging in at that point, is let's not talk about anything real. Let's talk about news, sports, and weather, and what we watched on TV And let's not get into the real issues of our lives because it's painful to be examined in that way. Some of us don't want to talk about these kinds of things because we have so many problems, right? We feel like, who am I to confront anybody? I've got so many problems within myself. It would just be hypocritical for me to bring up, to bring tension into someone else's lives about the problems that they have. And then others of us are on the opposite extreme, We think, you know, we know that we tend to be overly critical. We are. That's the thing that people always bring into us is you're you're too critical all the time. And so we say, well, I'm never going to bring up anything critical with anyone else because, you know, I tend to err in that way. So I'm just going to shut it down and withdraw. See that a lot with men, actually, in the home. Dads and husbands who critique and critique and critique. And then feel like it doesn't do any good, they're fed up with it, and they're tired, and they just shut down. And now they're in their hobby room instead of playing with the kids, instead of engaging with their spouse. And they begin to live these really shallow, really closed-off lives, disconnected from the people they love most. Because they hate confrontation. So... It's a pretty important topic for us to think about. How do you confront God's way? What does it look like to do this in a way that's spiritual, that's consistent with the truth of Scripture, a way that could actually make a difference in someone's life and could actually bring us closer together? That's what this should do, is it should enhance our relationships, not drive them apart. And so... He's reflecting on the confrontation that he's had with them, and he's making some pretty good points. First of all, he says, look, when I was talking to you about this stuff, I wasn't wronging you. It's not like Paul was just really annoyed and irritated with their behavior and just blew up one day and was like, you guys are always doing this, and it's stupid, right? Why are you always trying to make me feel this way, right? It wasn't like that. He was looking at what was going on in their community. He was looking at the word of God, which they had said they had had agreed to and saying, you know, some of the things that you're doing are inconsistent with the truth that you want to live for. And we need to work on that. It's very different. He didn't attack them out of exasperation and and revenge. You know, just sit down and be like, those stupid Corinthians, I'll show them, you know. That's not what he was doing. He says we corrupted no one. The things that he was confronting them about, the things that he was talking them about, were not leading them toward evil, but leading them toward good. It's not as though he has some kind of you know, sinister agenda where he's trying to manipulate the people and he's he's threatening them in some way to get them to do what he wants. He did it because he cares about them. He wants good things for them. He says, we took advantage of no one. What is Paul? What is in it for Paul for creating this tension with this entire community of people? What does he gain? Nothing. He's not saying to them, you know, um, you need to respect me more and you need to send me more money and you need to, uh, build me a nice house for when I come visit, right? The personal stake, the things that he has to gain personally is nil. He's doing this for their benefit. He says in verse three, I did not speak to condemn you for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die and to live together. He's saying, look, let's remember our relationship. We're not strangers who just talk about these surfacey things. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am committed to you. I'm not here to shame you into change. It may be painful to hear the things that I have to say, but I have already accepted you. I already love you. He's not so disgusted with them, like, oh, can you believe it? It's just so gross, you know, like he's swatting a dog who pooped in the house with a newspaper, right? Stop it. That grosses me out. That's not what he's doing. He's not doing it the way we use confrontation sometimes to drive people away, right? Sometimes, you know, you're in a relationship and you decide, I'm going to raise the tension in this relationship until you quit. I don't have the integrity or the courage To break this off i'm just going to be a jerk until you break it off it's not what he's doing he's moving toward them in love in the context of this unconditional acceptance and personal commitment that he's already established with them I think it's helpful to look back at 1 Corinthians and look at some of the things, let's look at some of the examples of the kinds of things that created this tension. What was Paul confronting them about? 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, "'Now I exhort you, brethren, "'by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, "'that you be made complete in the same mind "'and the same judgment.'" This was the family of God. They are ambassadors for Christ. Their call is to go out into their community and represent the love of God. Jesus clearly said that people will know you. They'll know that you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. The way they view each other, the way they treat each other, is central to their ability to represent God into a world that doesn't know him. And they're fighting against each other. They're taking each other to court, suing each other. Again, look at it. I mean, what Paul is doing is he's not corrupting anyone. He's not being selfish. He's not wanting them to do anything evil. He's wanting to guide them towards good things that will result in their joy and being used by God in someone else's life and result in the kingdom of God being expanded as people see what an incredible kind of relationship we can have when God is at the center of it. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 3.1-3. And I brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men. But as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink. Not solid food. For you were not able to receive it. Indeed even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? And Are you not walking like mere men? Now that's hard medicine. <clears throat> what he's saying there is rough he's saying you're so spiritually immature i can't even talk to you about the meaty things of the word of god i have to treat you like babies and at this point you shouldn't be acting like babies now any kindergarten teacher could know that that's like the ultimate insult right when a kid looks at another kid and says you're a baby it's like oh and that's what he's saying he's saying you are acting in a way that is not commensurate with the level of understanding that you've been given about these great things you got to grow up it's not easy to hear but it's true the things that were happening in that church the way they were they were doing things like you know deciding well which of the great apostles you know are are they under. And they would say, well, I am a Paul. I'm a you know, Paul came here. I'm his guy. There was this other guy, Apollos, who was a great orator and a great speaker from Alexandria. And they would say, well, I, uh, I like the teaching of Apollos, far better. And Paul is just disgusted with this. He's says, disgusted with the people who say they're of Paul as he is with the people who say they're of Apollos. He's like, we're of Jesus Christ. Don't look at men for your significance. Look to God. And don't create factions among yourselves according to the servants of God that have come to preach the word to you. You've got to grow up, he says. Chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 15, says, I do not write these things to shame you. Again, we see that. He's not trying to make them feel bad. He knows that won't change, create change. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I'm the guy that came and started this with you. And let the fact that we have a special relationship in that way give me permission to continue to teach you and guide you because you need it. Not easy. But if we look at it, we see... His confrontation with them is in the context of a love relationship. He's dealing with fellow believers, people who agree on what right and wrong are, who agree that the word of God is the way that we should understand and see the world. So there's a common ground here for agreement. He's approaching them in a way that is in their best interest, that is not with his personal opinions. He's not like, you guys like vanilla ice cream? Gross, right? It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a subjective thing. He says, you know, Jesus says that we should love one another. And you're disunified. You're suing each other and taking each other to court. You're going against the teachings of Christ. So this isn't about personal preference, but this is about what the Word of God says and your ability or inability to bring that into practice. He goes on, starting in verse 4, he says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. And hopefully you remember that the occasion where Paul is writing this is he is on the run. He is being persecuted. He is having attacks come at him left and right. And he's being very clear with them. I'm in a hard spot, but he's like, you know... when i think about you i'm very comforted and when i talk about you i tell everyone how amazing you are how great you are he doesn't condemn them but he speaks to them from a place of confidence that they will receive the truth and grow he believes that it's worth the risk of alienating them To gain the opportunity for them to shine their light a little brighter. To be a little more of what God has called them to do. And it's very interesting. As many problems as they have. I mean, you read through this and they're getting drunk at their meetings. It's chaotic. There's sexual sin all over the place. It's a a mess. Corinth is a mess. And he says, you know, but when I go around and I'm, you know, I'm in Ephesus. I'm like, you should check out the scene they've got going on in Corinth. These guys are on fire for the Lord. And it raises an interesting question. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer someone who avoids confrontation, lies to you, to your face, and tells you how great you are, and then goes around telling everybody else how terrible you are? We see that all the time, don't we? That's called work. Right? That's what happens at the office all the time. People say one thing to your face and then say something else when they, they get around to the people. And what Paul is saying is listen, when I'm out talking to people about you, I'm talking about all your strengths and I'm talking about how great you are. But when it's you and I and we have that real connection, I will talk to you about your weaknesses. I'm not going out saying, oh, God, pray for Corinth. They're just disgusting. He says, I'm boasting about you, and I'm very aware of what all the good things that you're doing are, but that doesn't mean that there aren't areas where we need to grow. That's godly confrontation in the context of love, and it's a great picture for marriage as well as for Christian community. That idea of, you know, you know, having your spouse boast about you to others is, like, really cool. It's like it really, and I'm not talking about getting on Facebook and being like, I love my wife so much. <laughs> Thank you for these 30 years. You know, no. I'm talking about what happens is when somebody comes up to you and they were like, your wife was saying, you know, how great you are with the kids. And You hear that and you're like, oh, my God. this." I am a man, you know, <laughs> you're like, my wife is out boasting about, you know, she's telling people about my, my great- And then you go up and you're like, Hey honey, I heard you, uh, heard you were saying some nice things about you. And I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been talking about how the dishes need to be get, get done. Right. But when we treat each other that way, whether it's as fellow believers or in relationships with our spouses, when people know that you're out going around talking them up, talking about the good things that are true about them, how much easier is it when you come in with critique for them to believe that you have their best interest in mind? Because really what we're all afraid of is the other thing, that you're out there trying to tear me down, to undermine the confidence that other people have in me, and then you want to come home and undermine my confidence in myself. It's not true, though. And if you take the time to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ to others, that will get back to them and encourage them in ways that, you know, direct encouragement is good, too. But to know that someone else was Talking about you in a really positive way to others really says a lot about the way that someone cares about you. He goes on in verse 8 and says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. It's really an important description of this process. He says, I caused you sorrow by my letter, and I am not sorry. I'm not sorry that I made you sad. He's willing to hurt them in the short term, If it's in their best interest, in the long term. And you can't be a parent without understanding this and the way that this works. Right? There are things that you have to do. My favorite illustration from my life on this is when my son was quite young. He was about a year and a half. He looked like this back then. Very square head. Very large head. I'd come home from work and he was sitting on the floor good distance from me, and he had picked up something, I don't know if it was a paper clip or a key, a metal shiny object, and he was right next to an outlet. Right? And he is, I look up, and I look up at the point where I'm actually seeing the forward motion of the thing toward the outlet. He's like, this can't be bad. Right? And I just happened to be taking my shoes off. <laughs> so, you know, My size 14 shoe, I mean, I don't even think about it. It's just like, my son's about to be electrocuted, batarang shoe across the room, broadsides him. I mean, the shoe is half the size of the kid, right? (laughs) Knocks him over, right? And he's looking at me like, you murderer! I mean, just, And I'm like, that was pretty good thinking. I'm sorry that the shoe hurt you, but I'm not sorry that I threw it, right? It's tough love, but sometimes you have to do this. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I'm sorry that my letter hurt you, but I am not sorry that I did it. The goal is not to cause you pain, but if pain is a necessary vehicle for godly change, then it's worth it. And no one's saying it doesn't hurt. It always hurts. No one likes hearing you're a failure, you're hurting others, you're experiencing less than God's best for you. And hopefully, we wouldn't say it in exactly those ways, right? But that's the message that gets through you're falling short. That hurts. Not because we don't know that we're imperfect, but just that we don't like being told that we're imperfect. And it always hurts. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. Temporary hurt feelings really do not do any harm in the long term. A momentary stab in the ego for a lifetime of change and becoming a more loving person is a price that we should all be willing to pay. And no one's saying, look, grow to the point where you're criticized and you don't feel bad. No one's saying that. I mean, if you could figure that out, write a book, right? We're saying, feel the pain. Recognize that's your ego. And let the truth do its job. Let that happen. And whether the pain is worth it or not, is entirely up to what? Your response. What do you do with the information? And that's Paul's point. He says, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. The sorrow that you experienced was necessary in this case for you to come to the, point, to the point of repentance, he says. So the point is not to some, make someone angry, sad, regretful, to shame them into changing and to just keep bringing up painful things until they stop doing what they're doing. Sorrow on its own is completely unproductive. And you can have pain that doesn't lead anywhere, but the sorrow that leads to repentance is quite different. And that word repentance is a very churchy word. It's a word that makes a lot of us kind of recoil. You know, we think about, you know, the guy on the street, the wild eyed, you know, repent, turn or burn, right? Repentance. It's it's kind of an ugly word because of the way it's been used against us. It's helpful, though, to know that that word in the Greek and the way it's being translated here reveals insight into what it is that he's talking about. That word in the Koine Greek in which this letter was originally written is metanoia. Meta means your mind. Noia comes from the root word change. Repentance if we were to literally change, get rid of the word repentance because it doesn't make any sense to most of us anyway. And we just used and said, change your mind. It would be more accurate to what it is that God is trying to say here when, when the Bible translates this word. Metanoia is changing your mind. And sor- godly sorrow that leads to metanoia, he says, is pain that leads to Change and helps us understand things that change the way we think. And that's exactly what he's trying to accomplish with them. He's saying, Look, if this causes you pain that leads to change, then I do not regret it. You see, worldly sorrow, regret, shame, and sadness don't accomplish anything. They're dead, they lead to death. You get depressed, you get dysfunctional, you get even more self focused, right? woe is me and I'm in so much pain and no one understands me and it doesn't have anything. It doesn't move you toward God. It doesn't move you toward others. It doesn't bring more love into your life. It just sends you in a downward spiral of despair. But godly sorrow leads to change, leads to life, leads to renewal, leads to salvation. Look at what he says in verse 7. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's sorrow and then there's godly sorrow. There's feeling bad, there's regret, there's shame, there's bitterness that leads to death. And then there's metanoia that leads to change. And it's so interesting because this is such a reversal of what so many people think the church is trying to do, right? I think you go to church, they make you feel bad and you try to behave better, you know? And then if they find out that you're not behaving better, they will try to make you regret it. Regret is what the church is about. What does he say right here? Godly sorrow produces repentance without regret. God's goal is not to make you regret the things that you've done. It's not to make you look back over your past life and your past choices and just whip yourself and punish yourself. His goal is to get you to let those things go under the understanding that He has forgiven you for all of them. And to lead you to change. God wants to destroy your regret. He wants to free you from the shackles of worldly sorrow. Because when we repent, when we actually understand and come to a point where we see what we're doing, we see why it's wrong, and we really don't want to do that anymore, we don't look back over the times where we used to do those things and beat ourselves up because we know those are the things that led us to the end of ourselves. And finally convinced us to change our minds. Yes, we're not happy about the people we hurt when we were behaving that way. But we're so grateful that true change has come into our lives. So how do we think about this? What does this mean? If you're not a Christian, how should you think about... This issue of worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Well, we could do a little workshop here and explain exactly how this works, right? God has some bad news. He wants to confront you with some truth that's not going to be easy for you to hear. That bad news is that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6:23. That when we do evil, God, as a just God, has to destroy and judge evil. And that is us. That we are all guilty of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That is bad news. And that is a hard truth. The judgment of sin is death, and we are all sinners. Sinners. God's bad news for us is that we aren't good enough. We can't be good enough. He is perfect and you are flawed. Does that piss you off? Kind of pisses me off too. It pissed me off for years. And that's what we're talking about. You hear that truth and you're like, I don't accept this. Right? It makes me mad. It hurts to hear that, that you're not good enough, that you're not acceptable. It doesn't seem fair, right? It triggers us into all the things that we were just talking about, about why this kind of confrontation is so hard. Who are you to tell me that I am not good enough? But God also says that he loves you, that you're his child And he died in the person of Jesus Christ so that you can be forgiven. You can receive forgiveness without having to do anything, but turn to him in faith and say, I am done doing this on my own. I am not good enough and I need your help. Romans 4.25 says he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. It's a done deal. It's a free gift for anyone. As many as received Him, He gave the right to become the Son of God. John 1. Will you allow the offense of that message to lead you to metanoia? the Changing the way that you think? Or will you be angry and sad and reject the truth? Because you don't like what you hear. You can be upset at the truth. The truth is unsettling. It hurts. It's disturbing. But don't blame God. Would you blame your doctor if he gave you a bad diagnosis? I'm sorry, you've got six days to live. Punch the doctor in the face. Say, how dare you tell me that? Right? Would you let that anger lead you to refuse to get treatment? That would be insane, right? You've got a disease. You're going to die. Don't attack the person who revealed the truth. Do something about it. Seek treatment. Don't let your anger just spin you off into despair and loneliness that leads to death. Embrace that truth. Let that truth lead you to change your mind. And admit, I am not God. I am not perfect. And I need God's forgiveness. And experiencing the godly sorrow that leads to salvation. For the rest of us who have reached that particular milestone, it goes on and it continues. That's really the first most important confrontation between us and God. But then there's the issue that walking with God is a process and we're going to need input from others along the way. There are going to be many more unsettling messages from God. As you grow. There are going to be revelations where you are going to see things about yourself that you never knew were true. And it feels like you've been walking around your whole life with your zipper down and didn't know it. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. Right? But then one day a Christian brother or sister will come by and say, hey, you got a problem there, you got you to zip that up. we you be mad at them because no one else ever told you and you could have lived on in ignorant bliss. Or we would be grateful that somebody finally had the courage to tell you what was going on. Ephesians 4.15 says, but speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ. That this is a, a fundamental part of the real relationships that we're supposed to have as the family of God. Speaking the truth and love and growing together. And if we refuse to do this and we refuse to accept this, we cannot grow. We need each other for this. Romans fifteen fourteen And concerning you, my brethren, I myself have convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace of the God that was given to me. Speak the truth in love and admonish one another. Boldly speak to one another in love. You can attack the people who try to come to you in this way. You can look at them and you can take the offense and you can be defensive and you can argue them. And you know, maybe you're a great arguer. Maybe you're a strong personality. Maybe you're somebody who can just take on just about anybody and maybe you'll win. Is that what you wanna do? Is that really what you wanna do? If you wanna teach people not to love you with the truth. I've got my zipper down and it's staying down no matter what anybody says. and I will punish anybody else who says differently. What happens if you choose that? How will you ever change? How will you grow? Don't you want to become a more loving person for the sake of your children, for your spouse, for your neighbors? Don't you want to be a more patient person, a more kind person? a more bold person, whatever it is, wherever the areas are that you need to grow, you are going to need feedback on how you're doing in that process. And if you punish everybody who dares to raise a question about your character, you very well may succeed in shutting everyone down and living in ignorance about significant ways that you're hurting others. Real love, real community, real relationship, real spiritual life, walking with God. That's what's at stake here. If we take this off the table and do what our culture has done and say, you know what? I just don't, I just, I don't want to create tension. Let's just everybody get along. We lose love at that point. All of those things require truth that lead us to Metanoia. Ask yourself when you're being confronted. Is this person coming to me because they're angry and fed up with me? Are they red-faced and talking about how annoying I am and how I always do this and I always do that? Are they coming to me with something because they're trying to position themselves because they have something to gain by a change of my behavior? Do they want me to change about something that the Bible isn't clear about? Is this like their opinion and preference instead of Having some scripture to clearly show me that this is something that matters to God? Or is this person, do they have nothing to gain? There's no reason for them to come to me that helps them. The only reason for them to come would be because they want to help me. Are they concerned about me? Do they want me to grow with the Lord? Maybe there's someone that God's been calling on you to be the one who speaks to them. Is God calling on you to speak the truth and love into someone else's life? What could be worse? What could be worse than having to do that? Than risking your relationship? What could be worse than the pain and the rejection that may come along with that? It's a terrible, scary thing and it's so easy to see the immediate consequences of such a step. But what is worse is losing our ability to love each other because we love comfort and avoiding conflict more than we love the people of God. We love ourselves more than we love others. So, I mean, this issue is no small issue What's at stake is love, real relationships, being a real community or just being a place where we come together on Sunday mornings and when the meeting is over, we turn to our left and say, good morning. And we turn to our right and we say, peace be with you. And we go down to Fellowship Hall and eat some crackers, a cup of coffee and go home. That's not who we want to be. We want to be something so much more than that. We want to be a real community where the power of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, and the love of God are as alive and vibrant here as they possibly can be. And it means we're going to have to both be bold in speaking the truth in love, and we're going to have to be humble in receiving it. What was the result of Paul's into this issue. He was reconciled to the people of Corinth. They got through it. In fact, they grew and they went on to do great things. Though they had a rough time, this confrontation, this alienation between them resulted in them becoming even closer, which is the way that it should work. Look at what he says in verse, chapter 7, verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter they came to a point where they broke and they received paul and they received the truth and they changed there you have second course 7 okay, thank you lord That you are not like us, that you um, speak the truth in love, that you died so that we could be forgiven, that you offer us love and acceptance with no price, and that you want us to learn how to relate to each other the way you relate to us, that we could love one another as you have loved us. How glorious that would be, what an impact we could have. And we just ask God that you'll help us. If we could improve in this area, just imagine, just a little bit, just imagine how much good that would do. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.